Utilities do a very good job planning. That's that's really what we're we're built to do. Some of the challenges have to do then with translating those plans into actions that are understood and supported by policymakers, regulators, and ultimately by customers. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Hello and welcome to a new edition of EI's Global Circuit Podcast. My name is Lawrence Jones, Vice President of the International Programs here at Edison Electric Institute. Our guest today is Mr. Bob Rowe. Bob is the CEO of Northwestern Energy. Bob, welcome to the Global Circuit. Lawrence, thank you. I, as you know, I'm a big fan of yours. I always uh, learn great things from you and the conversations that you organize and that one of your many skills is asking great questions. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So Bob, let's begin first of all with Northwestern Energy. Uh, The company has about 100 years of experience or history, if you may, and has and continue to be a forefront at the forefront of the US power industry. So for our listeners around the world who are not familiar with Northwestern Energy, can you talk about the company, uh, how it started, where it operates, and maybe the journey to today being a leading utility in the United States? Sure. Well, uh, Northwestern is a combination of two predecessor companies, both of which uh, have a history going back into the very early parts of the 20th century. Uh, Northwestern Public Service uh, was formed in South Dakota and Nebraska, delivering electricity and natural gas to these uh, wonderful communities on the Great Plains of the United States. Uh, the book telling that story was actually called Light Across the Prairie, and that really was its uh, its mission. On the other hand, uh, the Montana Power Company was formed through a combination of uh, a number of small electric utilities uh, in Montana. Uh, a large part of its mission really was figuring out how to generate electricity and move it across the spine of the Rocky Mountains from places like Great Falls on the Missouri River to Butte, Montana, where copper was uh, mined and and smelted. And really then part of the Montana Power Company founding story uh, was playing a a key role in helping to electrify the North American uh, continent. So two great companies. Both of them also had uh, experience in diversification uh, into non-utility areas. And those diversifications uh, produced some successes, but also were were very risky uh, and ultimately led to restructuring, or in the case of Montana Power, ultimately a liquidation when it uh, diversified into telecoms. Uh, But uh, they came together uh, several decades ago now and uh, one of the exciting things has been building a stronger, regionally focused, utility focused uh, company serving this, this great part of North America, South Dakota, uh, Nebraska, uh, Montana, and then Yellowstone Park in Wyoming as well. For those who have not been to Yellowstone Park, I have, and, and uh, I encourage you to do the same. So, so Bob, over the last century or so since its existence, I am sure, you know, Northwestern has gone through many changes. 
uh, you became the uh, the head of the company in 2008. And every time I've had uh, your peers on as a guest on this podcast, I've always asked them this question, which I think is intriguing for the audience, to tell us how it felt when it, you realized that you were going to be taking over the leadership of Northwestern. Where, you know, how did you prepare yourself mentally, but also emotionally for day, for day one on the job? You know, what I would say generally is looking forward from, say, when I was an undergraduate or earlier in my career, I never would have expected to be in this position, was never looking to be in this position. Looking backward from where I am now, uh, all of those steps make sense. Uh, I uh, went to law school after undergraduate school. I worked as a lawyer for a nonprofit in Montana, and there I got actually quite involved in uh, low-income rate design, um, uh, helping to advocate for develop energy efficiency programs, consumer programs, uh, the early work around uh, least cost planning in Montana. I did that for about 12 years. Uh, Then I went uh, to the Public Service Commission in Montana for another 12 years. Uh, when I left there, then I started a, co- a co-founded a uh, consulting firm focused mainly on telecoms, uh, rural telecoms in particular, really didn't do very much work uh, in the state of Montana. And then I was asked uh, to come in from the outside as CEO of Northwestern Energy. Uh, I loved every job I did and I learned something from every job I did but absolutely uh, nothing I've done had more opportunity for meaningful public service and working with dedicated public servants than what I do at Northwestern Energy. If you tell a line worker or an engineer uh, that they're in the public service business, they might uh, blush a little bit, but ultimately they they, they will agree. Uh, Our industry as you know very well, is so passionate about public service. So when I was asked to join Northwestern, uh, I, I was surprised, obviously, very surprised. I uh, had to think about it, uh, but then ultimately started uh, uh, really uh, thinking about the kind of company when I was a commissioner earlier that I had wanted to serve Montana. And towards the end of uh, my career at the commission, we were involved in the bankruptcy of uh, of uh, Northwestern Energy. I, I mentioned the, the diversification, uh, watched the liquidation of Montana Power as it became Touch America. And I was I was concerned about infrastructure. I was concerned about corporate governance. I was concerned about financial stability. And the way I, I summarized it, the way I, I answered the question, what kind of a company do I want to serve the place where I live? Uh, my answer could be boiled down to one that is financially sound, is operationally excellent, is utility focused, is customer focused and community focused, uh, and is able to work in the particular areas that we serve. So then working with uh, the good people who became my coworkers at Northwestern, we set out to do that. I spent a lot of time uh, asking questions, meeting people inside the company who I didn't already know, uh, talking to stakeholders, uh, customers, others outside the company, and then particularly being a Montana kid, uh, getting to know and spend time with uh, with people in South Dakota and Nebraska and really falling in love uh, with those areas. 
Uh, also uh, did some reading and thinking about corporate governance, about what makes an effective board of directors, uh, trying to understand a little bit uh, more about uh, the finance side, and then uh, spending an awful lot of time, obviously, with our operational folks. Uh, I thought I had a, a good view, did, did have a good view from the outside of what the operational needs were, but really going deeper into that and figuring out how I could support the important work that they were doing. So I, I think it's safe to say, Bob, that you, you have a very rare background for being a CEO in a utility, whether it's in the, in the U.S. or around the world, because of that regulatory background that you brought to the, to the work. So I think that's a very interesting uh, perspective to keep in mind that uh, you came from that, 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 that background, so to speak. Well, let's broaden the conversation and talk a little bit about what I believe is on the minds of everybody around the world today. And, and that is the issue of how do you keep the grid resilient? I know we had the biggest blackout in, in North America's history, I believe in 2003. Uh, and uh, since then, there's been a lot of uh, work done to deal with this issue following that blackout. So in retrospect, uh, when you look back, Bob, um, you know, what would you say are some of the lessons we've learned as an industry, but also at Northwestern in terms of dealing with some of these, uh, you know, critical issues that relate to resilience of the network? Yeah, I think of it obviously in terms of reliability, I have to say affordability, reliability, affordability, resilience, uh, engagement with our stakeholders. Uh, utilities do a very good job planning. Uh, that's that's really what we're we're built to do. Uh, and some of the challenges have to do then with translating those plans into actions that are understood and supported by policymakers, regulators, and ultimately by customers. And then beyond that, uh, drawing this circle not just to encompass your own network, uh, but all of the other networks uh, that are adjacent to you. And our company on the electric side is a little bit unique for a relatively small company. Out of South Dakota, we participate in the Southwest Power Pool. And we've seen real benefits from doing that since we joined SPP a number of years ago. Out of Montana, we're on the eastern edge of the Western Interconnect, which is, other than California, a non-organized market. So how do we participate with other electric companies, whether investor-owned, public cooperative, or the power marketing agencies on large regional issues? That has to do particularly with resource adequacy uh, and then the challenges of the transmission system in the West. So you have to uh, be both focused on your own system, but aware of everything happening around you. In terms of the planning on our system, uh, we have always been concerned with questions of resilience. Uh, we have multiple day peaks. It's not a two hour or a four hour peak. So right now across our system, temperatures are well below zero Fahrenheit. Uh, and that obviously stresses us from a supply perspective, natural gas as well as electricity, uh, and from a delivery perspective. So we've always had to do that kind of planning. Early in my career at Northwestern, uh, as I mentioned, I spent a lot of time with our system planners uh, who were, as I'm sure true, uh, at, at most electric and gas companies, brilliant, dedicated people. 
We also engaged with a group of stakeholders and brought in uh, an outside consultant to help kind of push all of us uh, a little bit. That became the Distribution Infrastructure System Plan, or DSIP, uh, with uh, electric and gas components both, focused just on the, uh, on the local delivery system, the low voltage lines, low pressure gas lines. We went from there to a, a larger focus, uh, an end-to-end -end focus, also involving um, uh, stakeholders, uh, to really uh, develop our vision of where the system needed to go. A lot of that is just basic blocking and, and tackling, uh, replacing poles. To, uh, we, we had uh, components of the program for underground, overhead, poles, ultimately substations, uh, and then technology. And we have always believed in deployment of, te of technology at the speed of value. Uh, and that goes from uh, everything from standing up a distribution operation center, uh, which is at the core of the system, to a deployment of advanced metering and then all of the controls in the field. Uh, one of the things I think I hope we'll come back and talk about is really the convergence of call it telecoms, call it IT, uh, with the power grid and for that matter with the natural gas system. So again, focus on on your system. Uh, and pay attention to what to what's around you. One of the important lessons that I hope we are finally learning now and should have learned coming out of the California and Western uh, energy crisis of several decades ago is that uh, risks are not necessarily symmetric. Uh, and in fact, risks associated with underinvesting uh, and being uh, insufficiently robust and resilient, I think to most customers, are greater uh, than the risk of over-investing or so-called gold plating. And again, uh, right now on, on our system, uh, I, I don't think anyone would regret that we have invested in uh, capacity to the extent that we have. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm extremely concerned about our our ongoing exposure to increasingly tight power markets. So resilience has an important, almost an independent value that uh, we and policymakers really need to appreciate. It's interesting the way you sort of frame the whole idea around uh, resilience. You know, you talk about the asymmetry of risk and this idea of speed of value. But to be a bit concrete, if you look at uh, you know, uh, Northwestern energy in the context of resilience, I mean, you're in a part of the country where you've seen various forms of extreme weather. Um, can you just give us a few examples of what you've done so far to, to sort of uh, tackle some of these uh, extreme weather uh, when they occur? And, and you know, what are some of the things you think others should be thinking about in the context of preparing and rebuilding your system to be resilient to these extreme weather events? Yeah, and it really involves an integrated approach. Uh, let me say just a word on, on the gas system, which is equally important in, in our service territory. Uh, in Montana, our gas system includes a limited amount of gas production uh, dedicated to our customers in rate base that helps us address some of the volatility in market prices. Uh, it involves gathering and storage at both ends of our transmission system, and then about 2,200 miles of transmission in between. 
that system needs to be addressed in tandem with the electric system. Uh, obviously, they are increasingly interdependent around, around the country, around the globe, uh, but also our customers depend on the natural gas system uh, simply in terms of uh, meeting their retail needs. So an integrated approach to the natural gas system, and then, oh, by the way, uh, addressing um, uh, methane emissions in that system as part of an overall uh, carbon and methane greenhouse gas program. So we're, we're focusing on ensuring the capacity of that system as demand grows. On the electric side, it's, it's very much the same, the same story. Uh, electric supply needs to be able to work with, with the delivery systems. Uh, with control, ultimately, you need to be able to communicate uh, with your with your customers as well. Uh, I mentioned that our South Dakota and Montana systems are not uh, electrically interconnected, uh, so we do have to take somewhat. We, we have uh, obviously uh, common practices and protocols. Uh, same people do a lot of the planning on both systems, uh, but operationally, they're very different. So, functioning in the Southwest Power Pool. Is different from functioning in the in the non-organized Western market. On the supply side in Montana, since the 2015 plan, we have been sounding the alarm about the capacity scarcity, which is uh, a Westwide phenomenon. It's a regional phenomenon, but it's also specifically a Montana phenomenon as a result of deregulation and divestiture of all of the generating assets by our predecessors at Montana Power. So we've been putting together a portfolio of owned resources dedicated to our Montana customers. Done a very good job of addressing uh, the basic need for energy, low and moderate demand. So since 2015, I've been focused on meeting our customers' need for peak. Uh, and uh, our customers in Montana are about, have been historically about 45% exposed to the peak market. And prices are uh, getting much more volatile and resources are becoming much more scarce. So that key part of planning is essential, but then also understanding what your delivery assets are uh, and increasingly being able to give customers greater visibility and eventually control on, on their side. But when temperatures are uh, for an extended period uh, below zero Fahrenheit, it's not just a comfort and convenience issue. It really is a life safety issue. We have to be able to respond. So it goes from supply planning all the way to the crews in the truck uh, at the other end of, of the system, all ultimately uh, working together. Uh, similarly, uh, in the summer, it's uh, very common for us to have an extended period of extreme uh, high temperature uh, and, as a result, very high demand. One of the common challenges is in our region, I think it's true in a lot of places, extreme temperatures are associated with high pressure that just simply uh, rolls in and settles over an area. And resources don't all behave the same way, uh, depending on, on temperature. So, uh, for example, this morning, we have a lot of wind on our system. Actually, wind is, at this point, the largest single resource source on our Montana system. Uh, it was performing, as a result of high pressure, at less than 1% uh, of its nameplate capacity. Last summer, during a peak event, 
wind was actually performing negative because uh, obviously there has to be a uh, there needs to be power to the generators. So uh, the diversity of resources and the ability to integrate and move from resource to resource is extremely important. And I think the point you bring up regarding diversity of resources, it also sort of highlights the importance of how operating the grids going forward, the grids meaning both gas and electric around the world will become even more interesting when you have the diversity of resources, but also you have diversity in the the weather changes across the globe that we're seeing. Yes. Uh, before we before we look forward, I want to come back to one imp- important thing. You mentioned communicating with customers, and and I've I've known you for many years, Bob, and you're very articulate in getting the messages across on a range of issues. But on this point, resilience, do you think we do a good job as an industry in telling the story about the importance of resilience? What's what would you give us as an industry in terms of well, we need to focus our message around resilience. How do we get it right when we talk about Oh, that is a great, great question. And uh, so many important policy issues uh, are driven through regulated utilities that I am concerned that we don't have enough coordination among policies. Uh, and I would urge us and policymakers and customers to really focus on what matters the most. Uh, I think it's impossible to over-communicate. Obviously, one of the lessons uh, we need to learn or technical people in any field need to learn is how to to communicate in ways that resonate uh, with customers leading busy lives. Um, You're a very sophisticated person. I don't think you necessarily want to know how every appliance in your home works uh, or the scientific processes behind um, uh, uh, moving a digital signal uh, from one place to to, to your living room. Uh, So communicating to customers in ways that make sense to them that are relevant and that are salient. And and I I guess really to communicating at the times that it makes the most sense. Uh, I mentioned that we've used a number of stakeholder groups. I think this is getting more and more common in the industry. And I think that uh, getting people kind of underneath the hood, particularly on the delivery systems and the technology is extremely helpful. Uh, And then on the other hand, uh, us, uh, turning things around and looking at what we do from the customer's perspective. Uh, sometimes it can be kind of embarrassing uh, when we realize how how far off the mark that we are. You know, no, nothing has been so intriguing for me, Bob, than uh, when we got uh, when I got married. We have three kids, as you know, um, mm-hmm. our boys are six years old, and they have taught me how to communicate complex issues in a way that makes sense. Because whenever I give them one answer to a question, they come back and say, so what does that mean, daddy? So so it's almost like using kids or using, you know, lay people, if you may, as a sounding board for trying to talk about these complex issues in a way that will make them, make them understand and resonate. So, so um, yeah, it's been a very interesting journey to see how I've learned how to talk about what I do, even with talking to my kids. Because if I say to them in a complex way, they're gonna come back and say, what does it mean? What does it mean? Kind of forcing me to simplify that message, but still emphasize that it is a difficult problem. What does it mean and why does it matter to me? You're, yes. you're right. I think your, your, your kids are obviously teaching you a few things. <laughs> you know, one of the areas that 
both electric and gas companies have, have engaged in is uh, the concept of design thinking. Uh, we have folks who've spent a lot of time there. And to my mind, uh, that really is digging into what customers expect and spending time potentially with individual uh, customers. I think the, the term that's used in the design thinking world is ethnographic research, uh, which is perfect. Actually, uh, spending time with people in their home, asking them open-ended questions, and then again, looking at our processes from their perspective, particularly looking at uh, the most painful recurring processes, um, a move-in, move-out situation, uh, a landlord situation. Right now, uh, particularly within EEI, there's a lot of great work being done on uh, understanding uh, who our low and moderate income customers are. It's probably about a quarter uh, of most companies' customers, uh, what their needs are, what their expectations are, but with some real differentiation uh, that 25% of our customers uh, isn't all the same. So we're participating in that. DTE is participating in that. A lot of that work is being uh, led through uh, EEI, the customer group, and then also uh, through the uh, Institute for Electric Innovation. Uh, so yeah. uh, the industry has moved so far beyond thinking about our customers as simply uh, simply ratepayers all all wanting the same thing. Yeah, what's interesting is that 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 notion of design thinking, as you mentioned, Bob, is is it's you know taking shape in other countries. You know, Australia, New Zealand, they're all looking at design thinking from different aspects. Uh, before we start looking forward and talk about you know the year 2030 and some of Northwestern's priorities and then and, and things around you know dealing with net zero, I just want to spend a few minutes on what has kept us busy for the last two years, which is the COVID pandemic. And specifically, can you just give us an idea on how Northwestern was able to navigate the crisis and, and some of the lessons learned that you think we can take forward as an industry, but even just as a society regarding dealing with the pandemic and other extreme uh, events in our, in our lives, if you may? I truly have never been more proud of this industry and its commitment to service than over the last two years. and. Whenever we talk about the pandemic, I go back to a quote from Peggy Noonan uh, writing on March 19th of 2020, uh, living in New York City. Uh, this is her column in the, uh, in the Wall Street Journal and uh, walking around the streets of New York. And if you remember the eight millimeter film that Spike Lee made, the desolation in the streets mm -hmm. of New York and the ambulance was going by and the police uh, vehicles going by. So. Peggy Noonan wrote, there are a million warnings out there on a million serious things. We add one. Everything works and will continue to work as long as we have electricity. It's what keeps the lights on, the oxygen flowing, the information going. Everything is the grid, the grid, the grid. And with all, again, all of the kind of the political noise that surrounds uh, what we do, uh, that really cut to the core. Uh, and as an industry, we stepped up uh, every Friday afternoon. Uh, all of the uh, industry CEOs and company leaders got on the phone late in the day uh, talking about uh, what was happening in our companies, but what, what also was happening in our communities. So I, I would summarize just a couple of points that were critical to us. First, keeping the system operating. 
uh, and that goes to Peggy Noonan's point. Second, uh, ensuring that our employees and our customers were safe. We all had to open up uh, our, our, our backup grid control centers. We had to figure out how to keep crews in the field and keep them safe. And in those early days, uh, a number of companies were losing employees or uh, finding employees on ventilators. It, it was a, a remarkable, challenging time. Uh, and we did it. We were able to move literally as an industry, tens of thousands of people to remote work and keep the system operating. I couldn't have done that without technology, without all of our IT professionals and our security professionals. The third thing uh, was, I think everyone really stepped up to support our communities and our customers. Uh, and this was before uh, large amounts of federal money were, were flowing. We all, again, those Friday calls, a big part of them was talking about what different companies were doing uh, to deal with, to support our customers uh, in their absolute greatest needs. And we, we obviously uh, were trying to uh, doing things like small business grants, uh, working with customers who were payment challenged, uh, donations to, uh, to food banks. Uh, so that was critical. As uh, just a parenthetical, one of the things that we were not able to do that it's been so important to us at Northwestern uh, was the kind of community volunteer work. We couldn't send uh, employees out to do the sorts of things that uh, normally they love to do. Uh, and that was that was a real loss. We couldn't get employees together in the ways that we traditionally did. Uh, and then employee engagement. Uh, was a, a huge challenge, uh, keeping our current employees uh, engaged, feeling like they were they had the information they need, needed, they were part of something larger and important. Uh, so hosting uh, employee meetings uh, on on Zoom, for example, or other ways for employees to get together. Uh, and then, uh, how do we onboard new employees uh, during uh, during that time? Uh, and actually, over the last two years, uh, nearly a quarter of our employees have, have turned over. So that's a large number of people who had to go through employee orientation, uh, initially at least, virtually. And that's something that's really important to me as we bring people into our, uh, into our culture. Uh, and then finally, what are the changed expectations of customers and of employees or prospective employees coming out of the pandemic? Uh, and how do we uh, continue to use the, uh, the good uh, practices that we've developed over the last several years? Uh, and how do we maintain some of the flexibility uh, that, that we've achieved? So actually, our, uh, in some ways, our customer service was able to improve uh, when our customer service rep, uh, if we have a storm or a major event, doesn't have to get out of bed, get dressed and, and go to the customer care center. They have to put on the robe and go to the uh, kitchen uh, table and log in through the, through the virtual private network. So, so some of those things, but I, I guess what I would say fundamentally is, I think most of us went into the pandemic uh, with a crisis action template uh, that's something we do better than a lot of industries. We were able to then implement 
that crisis action plan. And we were doing it at a time when there was, uh, I'd say, a, a lot of, uh, to, to quote the song, a lot of gas in the tank, money in the bank. Uh, we, we had some, uh, some good cultural reserves. And my concern yeah. is that we've moved now into the, into the second year. Uh, some companies are all the way back to normal operations. Uh, some haven't uh, allowed uh, large parts of their uh, employees back into the into, into the workspace or at different places as the pandemic rolls out differently. Uh, but I am really concerned about putting some more gas in the tank and money back in the bank, making some deposits in our in our cultural bank account. Yeah, that's good. I like that cultural bank account, sort of a preparing for what might come next. So let's look forward, Bob, and, and I want to talk about 2030 or 2050. Pick a number. I'm looking into the future. And obviously, the citizens of the world, they all focus on climate change. It's a big issue today. Uh, at COP26 in Glasgow, uh, many pledges were made. A lot of corporations, a lot of countries were making pledges about getting to net zero or doing something about the planet. So what are some of the things that Northwestern uh, has set up to do? What are some of the goals uh, and perhaps maybe what are some of the obstacles uh, to achieving some of those goals? Can you just talk a little bit about some of those? Yeah, well, first of all, our our absolute priority and certainly the priority of policymakers in the region we serve is continuing to maintain a reliable, affordable, uh, and resilient system. And we will not uh, do anything to jeopardize that. As part of that, uh, we have for years uh, had uh, taken energy efficiency very seriously as a resource. If anything, I think that uh, becomes more important. Uh, and uh, we've always had uh, robust environmental programs. That's a part of who we are as well. And it's, it's a function of uh, the part of the world that we serve. Again, the Great Plains, the Rocky Mountains, the, the rivers of the West. Uh, so environmental stewardship is really of a piece with stewardship of our uh, infrastructure assets. Subsequently, like many publicly traded companies, we undertook uh, a robust uh, program uh, under the heading of ESG, environment, uh, societal, and governance. Uh, and that involved, uh, and it's actually challenging for a small uh, company. We don't have the resources to uh, to dedicate to big, big projects like that. But uh, that involved identifying and disclosing what we were doing in each of those three areas. We've talked a lot about the community side already um, and uh, identifying the gaps uh, and then uh, moving to address those gaps. Uh, but as as part of that longer term commitment, uh, some of it means uh, changing the way you operate your system. So for example, uh, natural gas pipelines have historically been operated for safety, public safety and employee safety, uh, and then reliability of the system. Uh, and that's that's made sense, that's been effective. Adding to that, um, operating the system to address uh, so-called fugitive methane leaks uh, is new. It, it's, uh, it involves operating changes, but it also involves investment. Uh, that's simply a new way of thinking about that system. Uh, we and the rest of the gas industry and the electric industry are uh, are committed to to addressing that. Uh, we've talked about other 
measures as well, including greater regional uh, coordination um, that can uh, potentially uh, allow uh, great greater confidence uh, that intermittent resources uh, will be there when you need them if, if the footprint is bigger and, and allowing for overall uh, more efficient operation. Uh, like others, we're uh, paying an awful lot of attention to emerging technologies, uh, but are, we're cautious about making investments prematurely, both in terms of the reliability of any given technology, uh, but also uh, the, uh, the cost point. And then another area that uh, often isn't thought of in terms of helping to, to address emissions uh, is all the investments that we're making in our delivery systems to provide greater visibility and control uh, of those systems. Um, and there's a sense in, again, in which uh, electric or natural gas companies are, are becoming effectively uh, technology and telecommunications companies as well. So typically in moving towards a net zero commitment, uh, you are uh, working from a coordinated menu uh, of different strategies, particularly in, uh, in addressing scope one and two, but also uh, addressing upstream and, and downstream uh, uh, sources as well. I wanna move before I go to my next question, Bob, I wanna talk about affordability. What I discovered when I was preparing for this conversation today that I noted that Northwestern uh, you've been able to keep your residential rates for your gas and electric companies, uh, customers, I'm sorry, uh, below the national U.S. average. So during this time of all these sort of inflationary times, we have some inherent structural factors in the economy that are negatively affecting what's happening in the business environment. How have you been able to keep your, your prices to customers below national average? Yeah, you know, I... I going to go back uh, 10 or 12 years because the environment we're in right now uh, is not the environment that we were in even two or three years ago, uh, mm -hmm. truly. So go, go back to uh, 2008 uh, when energy prices were extraordinarily high. Uh, and then it was as if we slammed on the brakes in the, in the entire economy. And actually, that was a very, very good time to be investing in critical infrastructure. Uh, interest rates were extremely low. Energy prices, uh, after being so terribly high, uh, were low and falling or stable. Uh, so that, to the degree that you're buying energy on the market, uh, natural gas or electricity, uh, and instead of doing that, uh, you can use those same dollars to invest in the infrastructure uh, that you will be depreciating over 30 or 40 years. Uh, and that your customers will depend on, doing that uh, with low interest rates, doing that in an environment where you can actually uh, improve your credit ratings. Uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it's a great time uh, to do the things you need to do for your customers and your communities. That changed very rapidly. Uh, one could argue it changed uh, not unpredictably, uh, there certainly were people who who saw this coming. Uh, so now we're at a uh, at a point where we are very concerned about managing costs for our customers. Uh, we've always been, or for years, we've been an efficient company. When we look at uh, our 
uh, cost structure compared to even the largest uh, companies in the industry, we've done very, very well. So we've always been lean uh, and we'll carry, uh, we'll carry that forward. Uh, at this point, uh, we are concerned about uh, increasing natural gas prices. I mentioned how we are able to use our small amount of owned gas and our gathering and storage system uh, to buffer the market for our customers. And on the electric side, we are uh, very exposed to the peak market. And the frustrating thing for us has been that we've been sounding the alarm uh, for a number of years now and haven't been able to move forward as much as we would like on meaningful actions to address that risk. Supply chain issues are more of a challenge than simply uh, purchasing electricity and natural gas for our customers. Uh, we and uh, everyone in the industry are concerned with uh, inflation of all inputs uh, and the availability. Uh, so we're embarking on company-wide, the largest annual capital budget uh, that, we that we ever have. And as part of that, we're uh, paying close attention to uh, whether uh, the capital equipment that we need uh, is going to be delivered on time, how much it will cost, and uh, are, are certainly having to bake in inflation assumptions into, into everything that we do. So it is a challenge. Uh, we are, as you mentioned, we're uh, fortunate uh, and pleased that we've been able to hold costs below the national average, but um, uh, we are very much aware of, of implications for our customers as well as for our operations. I have two last questions for you, Bob. One is going to take us out of the United States for a second, uh, and let me frame it this way. So, so Northwestern has less than a million gas and electric customers across three states. Uh, the market cap is about $5 billion. Uh, it has very good earnings, good cash flow, strong balance sheet, uh, investment-grade credit ratings, and, and attractive future growth prospects. Um, so many electric companies in sub-Saharan Africa with millions of customers would do everything to get that same kind of a profile. Um, so what would you say are some of the foundational elements that should exist for electric companies in those countries to be able to achieve at least similar kinds of profiles like Northwestern to be able to attract investors? First, I would say whenever uh, I've had the opportunity to meet with uh, energy company leaders, telecommunications company leaders, uh, or regulators, uh, from other parts of the world, I have been inspired by them. And I sincerely believe I and we have as much to learn from them uh, as they have from us. And I'm, I'm really uh, quoting things I've learned from them. And one of the rules of thumb in development economics is um, you need uh, confidence around security of contract. Uh, you need governance and the rule of law, and you need a port. Uh, well, a port can mean something very, very different these days. Uh, our service territory is, is landlocked in the United States, but nonetheless thriving. Uh, but uh, in terms of enforceability of contract, uh, rule of law, that really comes down to a question of trust. Uh, and trust is, seems to be under attack 
around the world. Uh, there is less trust in this country uh, in institutions of all kinds. So I think that's the place I would start. Uh, the leaders that I've met uh, through, uh, through you and through others uh, have been dedicated, professional, really committed to, uh, to serving their countries uh, and, and their communities. Uh, and that's important. Uh, obviously also uh, access to capital. That goes back in part to trust. Uh, that's something I would uh, certainly love to see this country uh, do more uh, do more to support. And then ultimately it depends on people on the ground uh, dedicated to dedicated to building infrastructure. One of um, a story that stayed with me over the years, and there's something I think we can learn from this. I was at a uh, a meeting of telecoms regulators primarily, and this was uh, we were uh, all excited about uh, dramatically expanding access to the internet and and, and everything that telecoms can do. Uh, many countries were in the process of privatizing systems. Uh, and someone who had been called back from an academic position to lead uh, the telecoms authority in his country uh, said, well, I'm, I'm not as interested in the conversations about independent regulators. I'm interested in the conversation about effective regulators. And my measure of effectiveness will be how successful I am in deploying infrastructure, telecoms infrastructure, out to the remotest and poorest villages? How can I support those efforts? And the lesson back to my mind uh, in this country is how do we define uh, effectiveness and why do we regulate? Uh, Stephen Breyer, uh, before he became a, a justice, wrote a great book on regulation and its reform, really going back to his experience on the uh, as chief counsel on the Senate Commerce Committee uh, during an earlier period of, of regulatory reform. And where I would go there in terms of clarity of purpose, uh, companies in this industry are the biggest, are actually relatively small in the scheme of, uh, of the national or global economy, but uh, they provide uh, the infrastructure foundation for virtually everything else that happens in the economy. So that's our purpose, that's our calling. And the uh, companies uh, in Africa, Asia, Latin America are all very clear about that purpose. But at the same time, uh, public policy needs to be very clear as well. Relatively small companies, uh, I don't think the monopoly justification for regulation uh, quite holds water the way it, it might have in the 1890s, for example. A lot of what we do, uh, what is done in, through public policy, does not really reflect what a market would do. Uh, the purpose that resonates to my mind is uh, we are the operators, we're the stewards of our nation's most critical infrastructure. What public policy uh, ought to start with, what regulators ought to start with, in my opinion, uh, is that they are effectively co-stewards. They create the context in which we have to do our work. So one of the things I would do is maybe rename 
uh, either federal, uh, national, state, or provincial commissions as the Critical Infrastructure and Essential Service Commission and focus on policies that advance that kind of robust, resilient, forward-looking infrastructure that we've been talking about. And if, if, if a particular policy isn't consistent with that primary responsibility, or if it's at odds with that responsibility, uh, then rethink it. And that's as basic as how are you pricing uh, the service that you provide? And is the pricing aligned with the underlying costs uh, and, and aligned with the, with the purposes of regulation? So going back to Stephen Breyer, you might not get to exactly the same point uh, that he did in his book, uh, but you'd be asking tough questions about why do we regulate and what is the purpose? And I think maybe one of the advantages that uh, countries that are still uh, not quite as far along in the journey of privatization and developing infrastructure have uh, is that they can ask those questions freshly uh, and maybe get to some answers that we can learn from. I think that's exciting. Um, if I have a, a concern, it's perhaps that this country is not as present uh, in Africa or other developing regions as perhaps we should be. And Lawrence, going back to my comment about you at the start of our conversation, <laughs> you, uh, more than anyone I know, uh, is doing something to make sure that uh, we aren't just talking uh, to, to one another inside this country, but that we're talking with, engaging with, and learning from uh, the entire rest of the planet. Well, let's end our conversation, Bob, and thanks for those kind words. But uh, as the as the moderator, I'm going to come back and ask you one final question, but it's perhaps a hard, but also an easy question. Let's let's fast forward the conversation to February 22nd, the year 2050. It's about 28 years from now. Um, what kind of world do you imagine we will be living in? And what are the three things you would like Northwestern to have accomplished by then? And then finally, all tied into the same 2028 or 2050, what is the one thing you would like historians to write about your legacy in the year 2050? Uh, I, I would generally say that I am a, uh, hopefully a pragmatic optimist. Uh, I really do believe that over time, uh, despite all of the challenges uh, that we uh, have faced uh, as, a, as a global civilization, uh, we end up doing a little bit better. Um, and obviously the challenges we face now are as grave as uh, anything uh, we have faced for centuries and centuries. I am optimistic that uh, we will make progress uh, in addressing those challenges. Uh, I can't predict what the company I work for, Northwestern Energy, uh, will look like or be uh, years from now. What I hope is that as it evolves, uh, it will be a company that, again, is resilient, flexible, is engaged with its customers. And I hope that public policy will support that evolution. Uh, for example, there are all kinds of 
call call them transactive opportunities, whether it's plugging your uh, your car into your uh, to help power your house. Well, public policy currently uh, actually is a deterrent to that rather than an enabler. That again, the simple way uh, that services are priced. Uh, so I hope we're able to work through that. I hope as an industry we're able to be more more nimble and responsive uh, than we are right now. In in terms of my own legacy. Um, I mentioned I came in from uh, from the outside, and that was that was the right decision for our board of directors to make at the time. Uh, but more than any, anything, I think in terms of really really good people coming not just from outside but from within my company uh, to help lead it for uh, decades into the future, and I I love being able to. Uh, to look down at, at rising leaders and know that uh, they will do a, a great job uh, after I've left. And I, I guess fundamentally, uh, when I think about, you know, what's a, what is a life well lived, I hope it's uh, leaving things uh, at least a little bit better than you found them and helping to uh, keep things on a, on a track that again, uh, works and challenges and all um, does move things forward in, in a better direction. Well, Bob, you are indeed a great mentor in this industry, uh, and I've seen it firsthand. I've benefited from it firsthand. And what you just said speaks to this whole issue of sustainability, leaving the world better for those who will come after you. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up, Bob. I know I said my last question, but you prompted me to ask you one last question. If you may. It's a short one, but... Um, what would you say to a young Northwesterner um, somewhere in Montana, Nebraska, or South Dakota, who is looking at the transmission lines and distribution lines and saying, I'd like to get into that field? What would you say to that young person? Why should they and why would they? I would say that you have an opportunity to do challenging, meaningful work uh, in a part of the uh, the world that uh, that matters to you uh, to make a difference for the community where you you live and love and over the course of your career uh, the nature of your work uh, may change you'll have all kinds of opportunities that you didn't uh, think about uh, on your first day of work and uh, and be open to all those opportunities turning that around uh, every month I uh, sign service anniversary cards to uh, folks at different points in their career. And then as people retire, I uh, send them letters. And I always like to learn a little bit about, uh, about people and about their careers. Looking back uh, at, at someone who might have worked uh, at a company 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, even 50 years, and just imagine the extraordinary way that things have changed. Uh, and there are always... Uh, huge challenges and disappointments and frustrations along the way. But in every case, as I think about that person's career, uh, I can tell them, boy, you made a difference. Uh, whatever it was you did, uh, we're, a, we're a better company because you were part of it. Well, thank you so much. Our guest has been Mr. Bob Rowe, the Chief Executive Officer of Northwestern Energy based in Montana. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you, Lawrence. It is always a pleasure to visit with you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international. Thank you.